Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Lindsay McGregor is the co-founder of Vega Factor and co-author of best-selling book, Prime to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. Previously, Lindsay led projects at McKinsey & Company, working with large Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, universities, and school systems. In this episode, she shares the concept of total motivation, or TOMO, a simple theory based on the idea that why people work determines how well they work. Breaking that down further, she will walk us through the six reasons why people work, three leading to higher performance and three leading to lower performance, and how you can measure and manage them all. What is so powerful about her approach is that ultimately, it enables you to take something that's often considered soft and squishy, culture, and turn it into something tangible that you can actually measure, track, and manage. Stick around. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here with us. I'd like you to complete this sentence for me, which is, if you really know me, you know that. Tough one. I guess if you really know me, you know that I have two kids under two. And so I'm using all of my research into the science of motivation to the limit almost every day. (laughs) And there's no one who gives you more honest feedback than a two-year-old. Beautiful. We had Scott Anthony on, and he was also talking about how much he's learned from his children and applying that to strategy and innovation. They're great, great teachers. And you're surrounded by them every day. That's awesome. So what would you say that you are known for? Give us a little bit of your history and your co-author, co-researchers, and husband's history. And what's the work you're known for? Yeah, so my husband and I are the co-authors of a book, Prime to Perform, which is all about the science of how you build highly motivating cultures and operating models that drive performance. To bring it to life, a few months before publishing our book, an operational leader invited my co-author and I to sit down with the founder of a hedge fund. And this founder was worth billions and billions of dollars. And the operational leader wanted us to talk to him about how do you build a highly motivating and highly ethical culture. So you can imagine that this founder, every minute of his time is worth millions of dollars, might not have been that excited or that primed with a lot of patience to come to a meeting about culture, which is something that feels soft and fluffy and hedge fund portfolio managers and founders deal in much harder facts than that. And walking into the meeting, he's expecting us to come talk about how we need to plan parties or how you need a set of value statements. And that's not what we do at all. What we learned through our research is that the strategy you use to build how you operate, it makes all the difference in whether your company is nimble and adaptive or not. So part of your strategy is what you're going to go and do. But another part of your strategy is, do you have an organization that's adaptive enough to pivot? And that is where we focus. So we shared all of the research and data behind our work and how it was at such a level of prediction that it's been cited in the academic textbooks in our field. And the whole tone of the conversation changed. He asked us to measure the motivation and culture of all of his portfolio managers and his hedge fund. He was able to prove that it was worth millions of dollars per person. And it became one of their most important strategic initiatives, not because it was the right thing to do or it makes people happy. Fortunately, it does make people happy, but because it actually influenced the bottom line. 
Fascinating. So then that leads me, I think, nicely to the next question, which I'm going to ask you what your definition of strategy is. The context here is that if strategy depends on adaptability, then what is strategy? We think of strategy as like who, what, how, or where's winning and how do we win? What's your definition of strategy? Strategy needs to change based on how adaptive your company is. And so strategy is really figuring out how you're going to maximize the performance of your organization. But we find that most leaders have only been trained to think about half the equation. They think about the tactical side of strategy. So what's the plan? What are the big priorities and initiatives? And let's make sure everyone sticks to it. But they don't manage the second half of performance, which is adaptive performance. And this is how well you create an organization that can pivot and adapt and innovate as your environment changes. What mm-hmm. so crazy to us is that tactical and adaptive performance are opposites. If you focus really hard on the tactical, you tell everybody you have to stick to the plan. You cannot deviate. This is exactly what you're supposed to do at all times. Of course, they stop experimenting and innovating and being creative. If you focus only on the adaptive, then tactical loses out. And tactical performance is an important source of scale and consistency and quality. And so what great strategists and great leaders do is they figure out, how do I keep these two in balance? They're constantly analyzing, do I have the tactical and adaptive balance right? And what do I need to do to keep those two in harmony with one another? Right. Now, you started off in strategy at a firm. So what got you interested in strategy? I was fascinated by strategy because I wanted to really influence people at scale. And time and time and again, I would work with some of the best minds in the world, building some of the most sophisticated strategies. And you would go and sit down with the executive team and they said, great, the strategy is great. But this one page on how we're going to execute it is going to be the challenge. No matter what strategy we have, we don't yet have a strategy to make our organization nimble and adaptive. The best that's out there on how do you build a great culture that's nimble and adaptive at the time was copy what somebody else is doing. Back then, it was copy what GE is doing. But now we've all learned that that didn't work for GE. It didn't work for the many companies that copied GE. Then it became copy what Google's doing. But everybody's learned that infinite perks, while they might make employees happy, they don't actually make employees high performing. There's so many organizations that are in a perks arm race with no economic return at the end of it. So we needed to understand, is there a quantitative science behind high-performing cultures and operating models that make them adaptive, that is predictive, that's evidence-based, where you put people in an fMRI machine and it predicts what's going to happen, or you analyze hundreds of companies around the world and thousands of people, and again and again, you could prove that the way that you're building your culture is going to result in bottom-line performance. Tell us about that model. For me, that is, it's one of your big ideas, but that's one of the ideas that I really gravitated to when I read your book. Can you tell us about the model and Tomo? Yeah, so it comes down to something that's incredibly simple. After years of research and dozens of dead ends, it is fairly simple. It is that why you work determines how well you work. Your reason for working will change what you do. And there's a spectrum of reasons why people do anything. And this spectrum, the motive spectrum, has completely changed the way I live my life, the way I live with my family, the way I work with my colleagues, the way I build companies. Essentially, if you think about the reasons people do anything, it can range because you're working because you love the work itself, you love the activity you're doing, all the way to you're working for some completely external, unrelated force. So we'll combine those. The first motive, I don't know if you have a hobby, 
Yeah, I have several. I'm getting into gardening, but guitar, I guess. Cooking, cooking, cooking's my hobby. Cooking's okay. my best. Topic. Cooking. How do you feel when you're cooking? Just in the zone, like time stops and I'm just happy. Yeah, exactly. And do you cook the same thing every single time? Never. Never? Hardly ever. Okay. How come? I like the discovery of new techniques and recipes and ingredients. So I kind of do the same thing and that I go through the same process of picking out a dish and getting the ingredients and reading on how to prepare it. But each time it's a different dish. Perfect. You are describing the very essence of the first motive, which is play. And this is when you do the activity simply because you enjoy the activity yourself. Everything you described is common in play. You said time flies. You said that you felt like you're in the zone and you talked a lot about novelty. It was an opportunity for you to constantly explore and learn. Now that first motive is incredibly powerful. Play, however, is when you're working because you enjoy the activity. The next motive is when you're working because you care about the outcome of that activity. So that's purpose. The purpose of your cooking is to give people, maybe your family, a good meal. So maybe you cook because you like that look on your kid's face when they finally eat some vegetables, right? That's purpose. <laughs> then if purpose is about working because of the direct outcome of your work, the third motive is when you're working for some indirect outcome of the work. This is potential. Usually at work, potential is that the activity is a really good stepping stone. So maybe you have player purpose for your job, but you want to become a manager one day or CEO one day. You're working for potential because it's a really good stepping stone. Play, purpose, potential are all in some way connected to the work itself. And so they all increase adaptive performance. We're going to get now into the indirect motives that are not connected to the work. So Okay. I'm going to ask you, mm -hmm. have you ever tried to get a loved one to do something using guilt? Um, yeah, uh, I don't want to admit it, but yes, certainly. <laughs> <that> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it doesn't work. doesn't work very well. Or if it does, it may be, you know, there's some compliance, short-term compliance, but it doesn't result in like a long-term yeah. behavioral shift or. That is exactly right. So this first motive that's no longer connected to the work is emotional pressure. And it's when you use guilt or shame or FOMO, like the fear of missing out or peer pressure to force somebody to do something or to pressure them into doing something. And you sometimes get compliance, that you get the tactical, but you don't get the adaptive. They're not going to come up with a creative new way of taking the trash out when you pressure them to take the trash out. Or they're not going to do it on their own next time. It doesn't last, as you said, it's short term only. Right. Next is economic pressure. And this is when you're forcing somebody to do something for the reward or to avoid a punishment. Think sticks and carrots. Mm -hmm. Again, somebody will do it if you have a big enough stick or a big enough carrot, but all the adaptive stuff starts to go away. And finally, you get to inertia. This is when you're doing an activity and you cannot explain why. You're just doing it because you've always done it. It takes energy to get off the path. So what's so interesting is that these motives behave so consistently that you can boil them down to a single concept called total motivation, okay. TOMO for short. High TOMO when you have lots of play, purpose, and potential, and very little emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia is when you get the most adaptive performance. What's so interesting is that all of these motives can get tactical. If I yell and scream and give you sticks and carrots, you'll do the tactical, the checklist, but then all the adaptive is gone. You just do the bare minimum. You start phoning it in. Worst things can happen. You can start to cheat and lie. You can measure what motives an organization is using and what motives an organization is using and how they build their systems. And you can predict their performance. You can change the motives an organization is using and produce massive differences in things like 
sales, profitability, net promoter score, employee engagement and motivation. It is incredible. It is an absolutely huge eye-opener in how you design and build a company. I'm going to ask you to give us an example of that, but I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. I'm thinking that what you're describing as Tomo, it sounds to me like the net promoter score and that you got some positives and you subtract some negatives and you have kind of a net result. Is that an accurate way to think of it? That's exactly right. Yep. It is very much like net promoter score. There is something really interesting about it though. Like net promoter score, it's on a scale of negative 100 to positive 100. There's three positives, there's three negatives, but not all the motives are weighted equally. So one of the most interesting things to me in our research was we found that play was about twice as powerful as purpose. Wow. If you think about the last decade, organizations have spent millions of dollars on their grand mission statements and their values and all that stuff is good, but nobody learns about play. How do you create an organization where people enjoy their work? And we don't mean play like the ping pong table, right? This is not put kombucha on tap. This is not have Zoom video game hours, right? This is about the play you experience when you're problem solving, when you're up at a whiteboard with your colleagues, when you're deep in a model, figuring out how to structure it elegantly. And you can actually build that into people's jobs so they can experiment and create and learn. And that you can do from the most simple jobs or the most basic jobs, like somebody greeting people coming into the store all the way up to a chief strategy officer. There's massive changes you can make to increase the play in all of those roles. You've implemented this before, I know. And I remember you telling me at some point about one of the earlier implementations with a bank branch. Can you tell us about that? Or can you give us another example so we can envision what the results are? Yeah, I love the bank branch example because we all, well, at least we all used to go to the bank, right? Right. You can imagine going, you know, the little bank branch on the corner of your street where you go and you get cash. And this financial institution, one of the top five in the US, asked us to come and talk to them about their bank branches because this was right before Wells Fargo was revealed for incredible levels of cheating and malpractice in their bank branches where employees would open up fake accounts in their customers' names in order to hit their sales targets. Incredible stress. Right. And this financial institution said, we want to make sure that we're never going to fall prey to any of these ethical challenges. And also, you say this increases performance. So, you know, does it really? Like, let's prove it. Mm -hmm. So they gave us a number of their bank branches and they set aside a number of similar branches to serve as a control group, which was perfect. And over the course of six months, we worked on how do you increase the play and the purpose and the potential of the employees in this bank branch and reduce the other motives. Now, play became all about how does every single employee run an experiment every single week in their work? So think about how do I teach our customers something while they're standing in line to talk to a teller? How do I make somebody feel some joy when they walk in the front door? How do I transform the way that people are engaging with us on the phone? Their purpose before was what most companies' purpose is, which is a version of make the world a better place, which is fine, but it's not really specific enough to motivate people. So the purpose statement that they changed it to was, how do we make sure that our local community is financially healthy? Dramatically increased the purpose of the store associates, and it changed their behavior. It means when that person coming in to deposit cash for the local business looks stressed, they actually ask, what's stressing you out? Get to know their business, help them create a healthier financial plan. That creates loyalty for life. 
And the potential was all around how do we really purposely increase the skills of the people in that branch, where every week they're intentionally working on the job on skills around communicating with structure or engaging with empathy. It's not add more classes or classroom time. It's really intentional skill building every day on the job, which is something that applies at all levels of a business and is truly transformative. In this case, we don't always do this. We also really reduced the economic pressure. We got rid of the commission system and replaced it with algorithmic compensation, which we found is more meritocratic, more motivating, and less biased. And with that example, we were able to double the performance of the control groups and profitability, triple in cross sales, and the net promoter score of the control groups went down, whereas the net promoter score of these branches went up by over 10%. Wow. It became their most important strategic initiative from something that was completely overlooked before. That's super impressive. So give us an example of when you don't manage total motivation. (laughs) This is one of my favorite stories. This one is the one that everyone retells at cocktail parties. So when you don't manage motivation, I'll share this story. It takes place in the 1800s in the city of Delhi in India. The British government had a problem with cobras. Like actual snakes. Actual snakes. You're on your way to work and the snake actually stands up and spits at you. It is terrifying. So the British come up with a very logical plan. They're going to create a new program, Cash for Cobras. Every time you bring in a dead snake, you are going to get a bounty. So they set up their office of dead cobra receiving and it goes extremely well. Snakes are coming in by the bucket load, high fives all around until they realize that some entrepreneurs have started cobra farms, raising (laughs) the snakes for the bounty. The story goes that once the British realized this, they canceled the program, of course, and it wasn't even worth the farmer's time to kill the snakes. So they released them into the city, and Delhi has more cobras at the end of this than they did at the beginning. This is known, I did not make this up, as the cobra effect, where people are following the letter of the law, but they're completely violating the spirit of the law or policy. This happens in organizations all the time. Your equivalent of the dead cobra dashboard is green, right? Like you're hitting your numbers. It's killer, but it's in a way that's completely against what you were trying to aim for. So one of my favorite business examples of this is, have you ever been on the phone waiting on hold? You're waiting, waiting, waiting. You hear the line connect to the customer service representative, and then suddenly it goes dead. Yes. That is not a technology issue. We can send things to Mars. We can also route phone calls. What that usually is, is a representative who's being measured by average handle time, the average amount of time he or she spends on the phone with each customer. And they've got a little dial in front of them that tells them when they're in the red zone, when their phone calls are too long. And when they get there, what do they do? They pick up, hang up, pick up, hang up, pick up, hang up until they've got enough one second calls that their average handle time goes back into the green zone. Cobra effect in the real world. I love that you're able to really quantify and clarify the drivers. I have a ton of other questions that I'd love to ask you. We have very little time left. So let me ask you to share with us what's something that I haven't asked or you haven't gotten to say that you'd like to leave us with. Oh, well, what's so interesting is that the way that you can start to influence and build an adaptive culture is much more tangible and practical than many people think. Some of the biggest levers that we found is, one, teach everyone to be excellent problem solvers. When you're in a big organization, the way that you all problem solve, especially cross-functionally, becomes really painful. 
And problem solving is at the heart of play for most people. It's what they love to do. Yet somehow when we're in these big companies, it grinds to a halt. It is the worst part of your day. And just teaching a common framework of problem solving and strategic thinking across your company unlocks play and performance. The second thing I would do for any leader is to really think about how do you take your strategy and your goals or your OKRs or whatever your system you use and build a process that rolls them up and down your organization in a way that enables adaptability. So for example, don't stick with them in January and then they're the same in December. Build a process that lets everybody constantly adapt as they learn, dramatically increases play and performance for the company. And then third, there's bigger systems issues, but those two alone make a tremendous difference in your ability to both develop and execute your strategy. Beautiful. And where can people find you and your work and your tools? Our book is Prime to Perform. If you go to primetoperform.com, there's lots of resources there that you can share with your colleagues, as well as the opportunity to sign up for a tool that will help you and your teams measure your motivation and your operating model for free. Gives you some really great feedback and ideas on how you can start to take ground on it even just for your small team of five or 10, or if you're thinking about your 100,000 person organization, it can start local. It doesn't have to start global. And what's your purpose, your company's purpose? What are you doing all this for? And that was my last question. This research and the tools to build a high-performing organization are known. They exist, but they're not very commonly known. And so our goal is that by 2050, this research of motivation and high-performing cultures just is common knowledge. The old-fashioned, outdated way of building sticks and carrots organizations or struggling to reinvent the wheel as you build every large company is over. That's awesome. And thank you for doing that work for us and for everyone and for being here with us. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you to our guest. Thank you to our producer, Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. Catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.